Gresham College presents 50 Years of Conservation Areas by Professor Simon Thurley with Desmond Fitzpatrick and Lester Hillman. Ladies and gentlemen, may I first say what a great honour it is uh, to be invited to speak on the mere excuse of having spent 27 years on a Conservation Area Advisory Committee. I'm sure there are people with a longer or maybe a shorter but better, better record than I have. Um, it is also an immense honour to share a platform, as it were, with Simon Thurley, whose work I've always greatly admired, and indeed to be, to be speaking, as it were, on the Gresham Foundation, because I'm an, I'm an amateur in London history, and I think I know what Gresham College has meant to the city, its importance, and the role of names which come to mind when Gresham College is mentioned. And... Tonight, we are celebrating, in a sense, a shorter historic event, which is 50 years of conservation areas. And as I say, I have been around on the advisory committee for some years. And what I have to say will be principally about the city. Within our one square mile, there are, I think, 27 conservation areas and a quite exceptional number of listed buildings. The city is a world-famous financial centre, and, of course, the extraordinary demands for business space result in pressures potentially adverse to conservation. Now, the city's planning ethos is, I must say, favourable to conservation, but I have to admit other days, other ways. I learned a great deal about former attitudes to conservation from my old friend Douglas Woodward, who died late last year, in December of last year, he was a common councilman on the ward of Cripplegate, and he records that when he joined the city's planning committee, any word in favour of conservation was met not so much with hostility as surprise disbelief. He adds that there came a ray of hope uh, with the conservation areas principle, which I believe reached the city around 1971. Authorities were to define areas in which in effect, conservation was to be preferred to destruction and rebuilding. The process was to be overseen by advisory committees representing local conservation areas. Now, the corporation adopted the principle and planning committee approved the formation of a conservation advisory group to comprise representatives of ward clubs, architects and surveyors based in the city, and property groups with city interests. Douglas suspected, I think not without cause, uh, that these people would not be tremendously concerned with conservation. And he proposed to planning committee, I quote his words, the addition of a resident viewpoint. He said he dared not mention the dreaded word conservation, but offered the Barbican Residents Association as an appropriate residence cons cons consultative body. This was accepted, and the Residents Association formed the Barbican Association Conservation Group, which quickly grew in numbers and information and provided nominees to the city's new body, which was named the City Conservation Areas Advisory Committee. My earliest copy of the uh, rules and articles of that committee is dated 1973. I'm still rather uncertain when it actually started. However, uh, I would ask you whether you do not detect a certain familiar thing here, England amateur and knowledgeable, concerned and formidable in action. In other words, once the Barbican Residents Association got the bit between their teeth, they promptly form an association 
which is directly concerned, a kind of subgroup of themselves, uh, are directly concerned with conservation. Uh, and they were welcomed, I presume, in rather the manner in which, uh, to take a classical analogy, that the Common Council of Troy welcomed the wooden horse. <laughs> uh, it did occur to me, really. The, the, uh, on the other hand, of course, that we will see how, what good effects that had. I mentioned uh, uh, the, bar the uh, Barbican Conservation Group uh, started taking in members from elsewhere in the city and in 1975 was renamed City Heritage Society. And I mentioned City Heritage Society as another creator of conservation consciousness. So one has got CCAAC and the City Heritage Society and other bodies who are creators of a climate of opinion Something, I think, in this country which is terribly important. Um, climates of opinion seem to have a much greater effect sometimes, maybe, than, than laws and regulations. And the society went one further by, in 1978, organising, in cooperation with the Worshipful Company of Painter Stainers, an annual award for successful conservation of a building or other structure in the city. Now, I joined City Heritage Society in the mid-1980s, became active with Douglas's encouragement, served as chairman for five years, and enjoyed the rather laborious honour of running its annual architectural award. Um, I acted also as an assessor uh, for a good number of years now. I was nominated to CCAAC in 1990 and served as deputy chairman and chairman, I hope usefully. Its composition of the City Composition, the Conservation Area Advisory Committee, now includes 12 ward clubs and other bodies which include the London Society, the Georgian Group and 20th Century Society, the Royal Town Planning Institute, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, City Branch, the Worshipful Company of Chartered Architects, and a number of other bodies. And one does get that idea of how forming any organisation for the good in London the sheer amount of expertise that one can draw on. Uh, certainly, I've, I value my association with that committee from a great number of the people I've met on it. The committee meets at Guildhall, and cases for consideration are presented by the staff of the Department of the Built Environment. The committee's recommendations and the reason for them are reported to the Planning and Transportation Committee, and we know that these are taken seriously from feedback that we get. So, we are kept informed, we are well served, and I think that the corporation's support of and respect for CCAAC might provide a model for the proper association of a statutory planning authority and a conservation advisory body. Because I do understand that in some cases, conservation area advisory com committees are not quite, shall we say, as well served and, and one might say almost pampered as uh, the city's is. Conservation battles. Somebody asked me before whether I was going to deal with some particular case. I think not. Conservation battles long ago, I think, might prove rather tedious. But I will recall the city's worst conservation loss of the late 20th century. I would say about its worst conservation loss since the Blitz. And that, of course, one might say, is the, uh, the destruction by ministerial diktat of the south side of Poultry and a frontage in Cannon Street 
against the wishes of the corporation, the advice of the Conservation Area Advisory Committee, and I believe the pronouncements of at least two uh, uh, public inquiries. It was a ministerial decision, and the corporation had nothing whatsoever to do with it, except to protest. There followed the building of number one poultry, a structure of which, in my view, the less said the better. <laughs> but let me end on a happier note by suggesting that the last 50 years have seen a favourable change in attitude to conservation, fostered by 50 years of conservation areas and their practice, and in the city, 44 years of CCAAC, and 40 years of the City Heritage Award for Building Conservation, all of these things add up and they exemplify the growing zeal for conservation and the valuable cooperation to those ends of different concerned bodies. If what I have said appears overpersonalized, and I do seem to have used the word I very much more than I wish, I must plead in mitigation that the steady advance of conservation consciousness has been one of the better parts of the history of my own time. And in that advance, I am very happy to have been one of the foot soldiers. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. And I'd like to add my own thanks to Gresham College and to the Museum of London and Simon for making this possible tonight. Um, I've just got five minutes. It's five decades we're talking about and the next five decades. And I want to talk about five individuals. And these five individuals give me some comfort and confidence to take us forward into more challenging times and perhaps difficult times in the future and to reflect on uh, the planning heritage and excellence here in the City of London and right here where we are. Uh, the first person is going to be a, um, a pantomime legend. The second is a canonised saint. The third is... Uh, the uh, convicted convict uh, uh, and a, a, a prisoner. The fourth is a Macassar oil queen, and the fifth I'll, I'll come on to. <laughs> a pantomime legend, Dick Whittington. Uh, today is actually the 620th anniversary of Dick Whittington uh, becoming mayor for the first time. And became mayor, all that fake news outside about the cat and the, and the, and the rest of it, it's wrong. It was because Adam Bam, a uh, a ward uh, uh, alderman for here, for Aldersgate and Cripplegate, suddenly died on the 6th yesterday, 620 years ago. Tonight was the eve of uh, 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 Whittington uh, becoming mayor. And if you go to Highgate, uh, not in the city, but the city has relevance on conservation areas all around London, ownership, Hampstead Heath and so on. But if you go to Highgate Hill and approach the, the conservation area there, which is shared between three or four boroughs, you get to the Whittington Stone. You look across to the Whittington Almshouses, you see Whittington Hospital, Whittington Court. Uh, Whittington places uh, a, a world uh, uh, footprint, if you like, on Highgate, and he has some, uh, some references here in the City of London, I'm told, as well. The, um, I, I'd like to talk about uh, a canonised saint, um, St Thomas More. I came along here through the Barbican... <coughs> past uh, Thomas More uh, uh, High Walk, Thomas More House. Thomas More was a Londoner, born in, London, in, in the city. He studied in, in the city just off Threadneedle Street. He preached uh, in uh, St. Lawrence Jury, 
And he lived opposite uh, Ikea Street. It's not called Ikea Street, but it's Wood Street. And it's the prefabrication point for London in the medieval period. And I think that that gave him uh, uh, inspiration in his book Utopia. This year is the 500th anniversary of Utopia being published. If you go to the second book of Utopia and you go to just 12 pages, it sets out a a blueprint for conservation. He had a passion for materials, good quality materials, the right use of materials, design, uh, standards in terms of street layout, sizes of streets, the way in which it was controlled. It's a fascinating 12 pages uh, of urban design written 500 years ago. And uh, generally, uh, perhaps we haven't celebrated Utopia as much as we have. Canonized saint. The convicted convict, John Burns. John Burns, in the 1880s, came up before the Old Bailey, and uh, not for the first time, and was eventually convicted, and he spent time in Pentonville Prison. Following that time in Pentonville Prison, he became a cabinet minister, the first cabinet minister from uh, a working man, and he led through, with some brilliant oratory, the first Town Planning Act, the 1909 Housing and Town Planning Act. The, uh, the, the fourth one I'd like to say is the Macassar Oil Queen. The Macassar Oil Queen is better known as Henrietta Barnett, but as Henrietta Rowlands, uh, her father had a, a large empire uh, producing Macassar oil. It's the sort of thing that we don't really know what it is, but we know what an anti-Macassar is. <laughs> and uh, Macassar oil was produced and sold right next to Gresham College. It's wonderful to be uh, uh, with Gresham College and Henrietta Barnett uh, making so much money from uh, Macassar oil and directing it into urban design and a passion for not just the design of uh, buildings, which are in conservation areas, Highgate Conservation Area, 21st of December 1967, Hampstead Gardens Suburb Conservation Area, 20th of December 1968. Um, it's not just that those buildings are conservation, those areas are conservation areas now, it's the bringing together of the uh, uh, novel methods of land ownership, cajoling landowners, finding ways of funding housing, social housing, in the context of over 100 years ago. So the Macassar Oil Queen. And the last person I want to talk about is a person that's even more closer to us than those other four, and that is Ebenezer Howard. If we come out of the building here today, we could be in 4th Street in a minute or so, and there is uh, at London Wall uh, a wonderful City of London plaque to Ebenezer Howard. Thank goodness he didn't go into the family business of confectionery. Thank goodness he didn't go into uh, the line that he was particularly good at, um, uh, in his uh, paid work, which was uh, re refining the designs and patents on Remington typewriters. He uh, actually was a, a court uh, reporter and he worked in North America. But luckily for us, he uh, had this passion for garden cities. He published his works in Paternoster Square. And uh, we have uh, conservation in the context of, uh, uh, well, Ebenezer Howard died in uh, Welling Garden City and in Letchworth and all, all sorts of other places around the world. So there, I think, is five individuals, each with, coming from a, a remarkably different areas, each having an impact on uh, the uh, urban forms and, and town forms in, in, in the country today. We have 10,000-odd conservation areas in England. And I draw comfort from those individuals for taking us forward for the next 50 years of conservation areas. Thank you very much.
We've had a, a, a personal reminiscence about the uh, story of conservation in the city, and we've then had this extraordinary sort of colourful tale of people who've stamped their mark uh, on, on the city and its, and its built environment. What I want to do uh, this evening is I want to take a bit of a bigger picture. I want to look at how conservation areas came about. I want to ask uh, how effective they are being and perhaps ask some questions about them in the future. Um, but just before I start any of that, I'd like just to go back and uh, reflect on a piece of market research that uh, we undertook when I was at English Heritage. We asked people what they thought of uh, conservation areas and what they thought of the protection of the areas in which they live. And we discovered that 45% of adults in England say that they live in what they describe as a historic area. And it's very important to realise that those 45% of people are not just people like us in this room who are prepared to sit in a dark lecture theatre listening to people talking about conservation areas. They are actually a very wide and diverse uh, lot. If you take, just as an example, the south of England, its conservation areas are incredibly diverse and protect a very wide range of buildings, including a large number of very low-value dwellings. In fact, if you look right across the country, about a quarter of the houses that are inside conservation areas are... Um, Fall, fall into the lowest value of um, council, tax council tax bans, that's A and B. So what I'm saying is that conservation areas affect all sorts of people and not just rich people in big houses. And in fact, a recent survey, which is a different one to the one that I'm talking about, revealed that 93% um, of adults think that when you're um, trying to improve local places it is vitally important to save their historic features. So what we're talking about here is a phenomenon that affects large numbers of people. It affects people of all types and backgrounds. And underlying that is a passion amongst the population of this country for protecting um, historic places. But what happens when people actually confront the inevitable restrictions that come from living in a conservation area. It's all very well to support the notion of conservation, but when somebody comes and stops you from putting a satellite dish in the front of your house, you might not be so happy about it. Well, I think there's quite good evidence that the restrictions of conservation areas actually add to the attraction of your home. Uh, again, when I was at English Heritage, we, pub we published some, uh, commissioned and published some research uh, by the London School of Economics that found that houses sold in conservation areas in England went for 23% more on average than houses outside conservation areas. Now, it has to be admitted that some of that additional value is because houses in conservation areas tend to be uh, larger than other houses. But if you discount that, you still find that houses in conservation areas go for about 10% more than um, houses outside. And if you also look at the attitude of the people who live in those houses, those houses that are gradually appreciating in value faster than other houses, 
you find that there isn't really very much hostility to the planning system um, at all. In fact, um, homeowners who had applied for permission to do things in conservation areas were the residents who were most likely to have positive attitudes towards conservation controls. And this is because most people recognise that these controls were protecting the quality of the place where they lived. So we're in a bit of danger here of making this all look like a very big success story. But it isn't all unmitigated good news. Because although I think um, all the uh, information we have illustrates that most people are very interested in heritage, uh, like to live in conservation areas, the majority of people who live in conservation areas feel they have very little influence over the quality of the area in which they live. For your information, the statistics on this are that 72.1% of adults state that they have no influence over the quality of their local environment. So we're in a very interesting position. There are large numbers of people of all types who live in these protected areas and like them, but most people think they have very little influence over their uh, future appearance. Well, before we get to grips with this, which is the central dilemma of what I want to talk about this evening, I want to turn the clock back and look at the invention of the conservation area 50 years ago and just ask, what is it that our forebears were trying to achieve? Well, of course, conservation um, areas were born, as we've already uh, heard from Desmond, out of a post-war world where the physical infrastructure of England was under rapid and, I think, uh, harmful change. The listing of buildings had, of course, been born out of the need to make decisions urgently about bombed-out city centres. But by the 1950s, it wasn't um, only the rep repair and replacement uh, of these buildings that was to the fore, it was the question of whole-scale reconstruction. In the 1950s, towns were beginning to be planned in a new way to facilitate the smooth and fast passage of the motor car. In the 1960s, this process moved from the bomb-ravaged city centres of Coventry and Plymouth to the historic towns that were now being uh, regarded by many as being out of date and unworkable. Ring roads, circulatories, bypasses, many with dual carriageways and most with roundabouts, flyovers, elevated sections, all these things spread all over Britain. And they were rapidly followed by multi-storey car parks, road signs and pedestrianised shopping centres. So um, here is a plan of Chester. Uh, it was done in 1945 by the city surveyor, Charles Greenwood. And his vision was to declutter the medieval streets and enable the smooth and fast transit of cars. Key to this was an inner and an outer bypass. And this uh, plan here shows the inner one, which involved uh, the destruction of um, a large number of Georgian houses. These were just 
the best ones of a strategy that was to see the further demolition of 2,500 houses, all of which were 100 years old and therefore considered to be badly out of date. The strategy also allowed for um, a, the redevelopment of a very large area of the city centre right opposite uh, the Abbey. And here the plan was to build a new civic centre. And this uh, uh, was a phenomenon that happened not only in Chester, but in dozens and dozens of historic cities. A new civic centre. Uh, and the mayor of Chester, uh, looking at these plans, feeling uh, g'd up by them, brashly asserted that we are not a load of old fogies living on our traditions. And so, here you see the construction of the Inner Inn Road in Chester, uh, and the massive roundabout uh, here. Uh, and uh, this was opened by Barbara Castle, the Minister of Transport, in 1966. Here you see uh, one of the Georgian streets, uh, uh, Pepper Street, uh, with its Georgian houses. Um, here you see the houses knocked down to widen the street and to build a new uh, shopping centre. So it was this, it was this sort of destruction that, was um, that began to stimulate vocal and passionate public response. And one of the most uh, important expressions of this was in fact the foundation of the Civic Trust in 1957, a federation of local civic societies that wanted to encourage better urban design and protect historic buildings and places. By 1960, 300 societies were registered with the trust, uh, a figure that had doubled only seven years later. And it won't surprise you to hear that Chester was one of the first cities to get a civic trust. Now, although um, civic action, and we've already heard about civic action in the city from Desmond, and it's very, uh, it's very, very typical what happened in the city, to, uh, city of London, as to what happened across the country, the really important part of the story, which we need to understand, is the role that central government was to play. Now, we have to remember that in the 1950s, responsibility for protecting uh, the country's heritage was split between two government departments. There was the Ministry of Works that had acquired the powers to schedule ancient monuments and take the important ones into its care, and it had acquired some powers to give uh, grants. But the crucial power of listing wasn't in its remit. This was held in a second ministry, the Ministry of Housing and Local Government, the MHLG. And the MHLG had begun by the mid-1960s to realise that it had to somehow begin to understand the impact of all this um, very drastic development on uh, uh, historic towns and cities. And they commissioned a series of reports on York, Chester, Kings Lynn, Bath and Chichester. Now, I know about one of these reports because some of you who've been to my lectures before will know that I live in King's Lynn. Uh, and you can see here um, rather a good photograph of the high street uh, in King's Lynn in the 1960s. And you can see here uh, what the planners were worried about. The traffic. They uh, uh, saw the traffic and they uh, predicted that it was going to grow um, tenfold in the next uh, 10 years. 
And uh, here, proposals were put forward that would have wiped out the whole of the historic uh, town centre, replaced it with a dual carriageway and a giant multi-storey car park uh, on the site of my current house. <laughs> so these reports that were commissioned by the MHLD showed the appalling destruction that was uh, uh, potentially going to take place. Well, after winning the 1964 general election, Harold Wilson appointed Anthony Crossman, uh, who was one of his cleverest and loyalist supporters to the Ministry of Housing and Local Government. This was a big job, and with it came the responsibility for listing. Now, the number of listing uh, uh, in investigators, the people who went around listing buildings, had been run down by the preceding Tory government from 24 people to only nine. And this had stunted the progress of compiling the statutory lists of buildings. By 1962, of the 1,500 uh, local authority areas, only just uh, about 1,000 lists had been actually issued. And many of these lists didn't cover a whole local authority. But that wasn't the worst of it, because most of these early lists contained very few, if any, buildings dating later than 1,800. Now, you'll be aware, I'm sure, that the vast majority of our towns and villages are made up of such late Georgian and Victorian buildings. And what this meant was that listing that was going on in the um, Ministry of Housing and Local Government was not protecting the townscapes that made up our historic settlements. And even today, we need to remember that 80% of the buildings built before 1851 are not listed. And even if we look at all the building stock dating between 1851 and 1918, even fewer are listed. In fact, 99.5% of those buildings are unlisted. And it's these very buildings that give our villages, towns and cities their historic character. Moreover, in the late 1950s, it emerged that listing wasn't actually proving much of a bastion against all this destruction that I've been showing you anyway. Because in 1959, there had been 505 notices to demolish listed buildings, increasing to 684 notices in 1960. Just to give you a sort of feeling, in uh, an average year in the 21st century, the number of listed buildings that get demolished might be two or three. And so in 1960, 584 listed buildings were being demolished every year. So uh, in May 1965, um, Anthony Crossman travelled to Newcastle-upon-Tyne and visited Eldon Square, uh, the city's finest Georgian square. It was then earmarked for demolition and replacement with a shopping centre. He wrote in his diary, and I thoroughly recommend his diaries, but they're absolutely fascinating picture of planning in the, in the 1960s. And this is what he wrote. I blew up our regional staff in Newcastle and told them that they were vandals for giving my consent. But I knew it was already a fait accompli and that when I get back to the department, I shall be forced to draft the directive letter saying that they should have my permission to demolish. This event 
visiting the square and realizing that he could do nothing to protect it because the decision's already been made, convinced him of two things. First of all, that the fragmentation of, the, of responsibility from heritage between two departments was completely hopeless and it was necessary to bring responsibility to, uh, together. But secondly, that uh, listing and the current legislation was not adequate in dealing with uh, uh, situations like um, uh, um, Eldon Square. So whilst uh, his mandarins were busy uh, fighting off the changes to uh, amalgamate these two departments, Crossman teamed up with the Conservative MP and former housing minister Duncan Sands. Now, Duncan Sands had in instigated um, the foundation of the Civic Trust, which I'd already, already talked about. And with the trust, he had developed the idea of a new bill to go in Parliament that would preserve the history and harmony of whole areas rather than individual buildings. And these whole areas might not have any listed buildings in them at all, but as a whole might be of great historic interest beauty and charm. Sands had actually, luckily, drawn first place in the ballot for private members' bills, and this enabled the Civic Amenities Act that created conservation areas to be passed in 1967 with the support of Crossman and the government. Now, in achieving uh, this, he had the support and interest of one of the most remarkable figures in the history of heritage preservation in the UK. That is John Smith. Now, the Smiths were a banking dynasty. Uh, he uh, was in the family business as a director of Coote's Bank. Uh, I think otherwise he might have uh, chosen to be uh, uh, an architect. His uh, sister, uh, Fortune, married uh, the Earl of Euston, who became the 11th Duke of Grafton. And uh, the Duke of Grafton was already very active in protecting uh, buildings. And when John Smith was uh, put up for the National Trust Historic Buildings Committee in the summer of 1952, Lord Isher said, and I quote, Well, it's a good job to have a proletarian name on the committee. Does anyone know the man? Lord Euston, who was already a member, replied, Yes, he's my brother-in-law. So Smith's uh, energies were initially put into the National Trust, but soon he came to realise that the Trust, which is brilliant at saving great buildings, wasn't going to be very good at, uh, at saving smaller ones. And so uh, this remarkable man uh, decided to fund uh, and, and found the Landmark Trust to uh, save uh, small buildings that the National Trust wouldn't be interested in. But he wasn't uh, contented with setting up his own charity. So he got himself um, elected uh, as Member of Parliament for the cities of London and Westminster. And with a, uh, within a year of being elected, he teamed up with uh, uh, Duncan Sands to be the seconder of the Civic Amenities Act. And he spoke uh, brilliantly, eloquently, uh, in uh, the House... Uh, during the passage of the bill. He argued that uh, preservation and amenity, far from being reactionary, are part of the object and true aim of all politics 
and one of the true end products of all industry and making of England of a more agreeable place to be in. Talking of historic towns and villages, he explained, and I quote, we do not wish to embalm such places, to make no changes, but to control and slow down the rate of change. To care for them in this way means that not the present is dead, but that the past is alive. If we can give our children the benefit of such places, they will advance into the future not alone, but accompanied and supported by the friendly hosts of the past. That the legislation was introduced as a private member's bill appealed to him very much. And he said, and I quote, I am also pleased that this is not the government's bill, but a private member's bill. The first steps in public amenity were taken by private citizens in the great age of self-help when people banded together and did it for themselves instead of waiting for the state to do it for them. And again, Desmond started this uh, uh, theme about self-help. And one of the key things we have to remember about conservation areas is they came from the grassroots upwards. They came through uh, uh, the energy of people like Duncan Sands and John Smith, but from the passion of people who were desperately concerned about the destruction of heritage around them. Well, um, uh, we've already heard that the legacy of Crossman, of uh, Sands and Smith was, uh, uh, is around 9,800 conservation areas um, today. But as I've also indicated at the start of my uh, uh, talk, many people feel that they just can't influence what happens to conservation areas. Many people feel that although they want the character of their areas to be preserved and enhanced as the law requires, that local authorities are either not prepared to enforce restrictions or actually flaunt those restrictions themselves. Uh, English Heritage, now of course Historic England, started to do regular surveys of the condition of conservation areas in 2013. And it now holds data on the condition of 80% of conservation areas across the country. Nearly 500 of them are currently judged to be nearing the point where their designation as a conservation area must be doubted. Their buildings are degraded and spoilt by un unsympathetic additions or new development. Now, there is nothing like giving a current example of this. The previous speakers shied away but fearlessly, I am going to give you an example. On December the 6th, oh, so that's an example, sorry, that's an example of Leeds, uh, uh, and the conservation areas um, in Leeds, just to show you, uh, you know, how many there can be um, in a, a big urban area. Here is my example. On December the 6th last year, Westminster City Council uh, Planning Committee approved a proposal to demolish the former Royal Mail sorting office next to Paddington Station. As you see, this is a handsome building with neo-baroque detailing. It was completed in 1907 and forms a very important part of the setting of the Grade 1 station designed by Brunel, which of course is just next door to it, just over here. 
The building was actually locally listed, uh, which is a non-statutory designation that meant that the council had to take special regard of its architectural qualities. But more importantly for our purpose this evening, this sorting office uh, forms a very important part of the Bayswater conservation area. The developer, the Seller Property Group, proposed to replace the sorting office with a 19-storey tower, 54 metres high, a glass block that the press dubbed the cube. Once more. Um, so, um, if we look at the area in which this so-called cube is to be built, we will see that the whole area comprises terraces of uh, domestic-sized buildings built in brick and stucco, none of which are more than six storeys high. The existing post office makes, I think, a very contri a good contribution to the area and is very much in harmony with the low-level traditional building materials. Uh, and, uh, of course, it had also been um, highlighted as being special interest. I want to know how the demolition of this building and its replacement by the fatuously named cube either preserves or enhances the character of the conservation area, or, for that matter, respects the setting of the Grade 1 station next door to it. Well, what is the solution to an issue like this? Uh, uh, and um, I'm going to come back to this case uh, at the end. The first point is, is that conservation areas are quite a blunt instrument. Uh, you have a conservation area in Neesden, and you have a conservation area in Bath. And both of them protect the special, care, uh, special character of the area, but the job uh, 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 that they're doing is quite different. Actually, between 1975 and 1990, there were two tiers of conservation areas. There was uh, one tier which were called outstanding, and there was a second uh, tier which was the, uh, which was the, 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 the normal tier. Uh, could you reintroduce, perhaps, uh, uh, a, a, a system that has um, two tiers? Well, I don't think you need to, because actually, if you are operating a conservation area properly, there are extremely good mechanisms that you can use. Many of them uh, have as their basis very good survey work provided by local groups, in particular by civic societies and the groups such as the ones we've been hearing about in the City of London. And... Uh, uh, local authorities are obliged to um, consult people on the designation of their conservation area. And here is a, a, a little, nice little piece of work done in the East Marlebone conservation area showing the sort of um, analysis you can do of your, um, of your area. And the information in these appraisals can be used by the local authority when it's drawing up its local plan. And indeed, this may and very often does lead to special planning guidance which can govern a, uh, a, 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 a conservation area like this. And so, for instance, here in the city, each of the 27 conservation areas is going to have a character summary and a management plan that will be incorporated into a supplementary planning uh, document that actually has legal force. 
when things go wrong, councils have pretty wide powers of enforcement. Uh, Most importantly, they can issue something called an Article 4 direction. And this uh, limits permitted development rights in an area in order to preserve the character of a conservation area. So, for instance, um, a local authority might require um, permission for changing your windows from timber ones to plastic ones by an Article 4 um, uh, direction in a conservation area. Perfectly possible to do and obviously preserves the character of a place very effectively. And then... When you have an owner who's neglected or changed their building in an unsympathetic way, using something called a Section 215 notice, the local authority can require the building owner to improve uh, their uh, building to make it uh, uh, harmonise with the conservation area. So you see, there's a perfectly good framework that exists, which involves um, consultation, uh, careful plan-making and uh, enforcement, um, if if you want it. So it looks, uh, on paper, like nearly a perfect system. But, ladies and gentlemen, there is a flaw. The flaw is called democracy. Because planning committees have the final say on what is built. And they are made up of people who might not have a strong passion for a conservation area. Or people who, as in the case of the Paddington Cube believe that, a conservation, uh, uh, that conservation in an area should take second place to financial investment or to so-called great modern architecture. And it was, uh, in fact, this latter um, argument that this was a work of architectural genius that led to the unanimous decision to pass this through the Paddington um, Committee. Now, when something like this happens, the Secretary of State can intervene. And you'll be interested to hear, in the case of Paddington, that is what has happened. He has issued a holding direction to Westminster City Council while he decides whether there should be a planning inquiry. If there is to be a planning inquiry, it will be Westminster City Council and the developers on one side against the local people on the other. On one side, a £770 million development backed by big-name developers and architects, the local authority and the best money lawyers can buy against the community and heritage groups. Is this right? Is this what conservation areas were originally for? As I stepped up to get onto this platform, Lester thrust into my hands a copy of tonight's Evening Standard which shows exactly this. Protesters gutted by, de- by decision to demolish f- former bingo hall. There's a picture of people here uh, with big placards saying, not in a conservation area. So, the people against the developers. So, because of this situation, some people have called for the rules to be re- redrawn. I personally think that the rules are good And actually, conservation areas have stood us in extremely good stead over the last 50 years. What we really need is for local planning committees to follow the guidance. Now, why won't they do this? I'm going to use quite a strong word here, and I'm going to use it um, deliberately, but um, in a very special way. And the reason I think they won't do it 
is because corruption has crept into the system. Because now, developers who are backing a new development must pay something called a Community Infrastructure Levy, a CIL, a SIL. And they also will probably have to make a Section 106 contribution. These things are cash sums that are paid by a developer to the local authority for local infrastructure work. So, if you are a a cash-strapped local authority and a massive development in a conservation area is going to yield you £10 million in so-called community benefits, would you put conservation first or the fact that your ward, which might be a very long way away from where the development was, is going to get a new school? I'm going to leave the answer for that question to this audience to decide. Well, I really like to try and be the bringer of hope when I'm standing here giving these lectures. But I'm not sure right now that I can do this. Because the climate in which we live at the moment is very different from the one in which conservation areas were founded 50 years ago. The threats to our heritage, which were described at the beginning uh, uh, by my colleagues, and which I went into some depth, you know, deliberately giving you the case uh, study of Chester. These threats to our heritage are just simply not so pressing as they were in the 1950s. Crossman, Sands and Smith were giants, fighting giants, and they won. But today we're more concerned about cash than heritage. And in the case... Uh, where we have very good local politicians, and there are many very good local politicians who uh, uh, champion heritage and very many good decisions that are made, but there are many uh, who do not make these decisions. And we have to remember, and we have to remind them, that to make a good place to live in, you need to give a place a soul as well as a bottom line. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.